So we are finishing our series today, by God's grace, on, um, entitled Whiter Than Snow. We know from the book of Titus that uh, Christ came to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The Old Testament author Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together. Isaiah is speaking for God. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We rejoice in the cleansing grace of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the purifying work that he accomplishes in our lives. But too often the church becomes like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus uh, was reclining at the table. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, you see the barriers, uh, the boundaries that they had set up uh, around their, their sense of identity and their sense of righteousness and purity and, and probably motivated by a desire to be right with God, but right with God, not by grace, but through their effort. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, Jesus is not calling the Pharisees here righteous. He's challenging their sense of righteousness and their uh, failure to receive mercy from him, the physician. Um, he folds, as, as one of my authors that I've read says, he folds sacrifice into mercy. Mercy is the sacrifice that God wants us to make. So we went through this, uh, and we're asking the question, how do we move from a purity culture, from a pharisaical you know, uh, separateness, to becoming a welcoming culture, a culture of embrace, not exclusion. As Paul says in Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And we want to be that kind of church. We want to be those kinds of people because that's the kind of grace and mercy that we've received. Um, we've talked about two paths so far, uh, two things that I think are very important for us to to settle in on. One is to build an identity of ourselves, who we are uh, in relation to God and in relation to each other uh, that is based, foundationed on grace. Uh, this idea that we are recipients of the overflow of God's goodness, um, that there is nothing that we have to offer Him uh, other than the praise of the redeemed people. <laughs> um, so building that foundation of grace changes how we think about ourselves in relation to each other and certainly in relation to God. Uh, the second path uh, is the path of sacrifice. Uh, building an identity on grace will lead you to humility, will challenge your self-righteousness. It will lead you to humility, and humility opens you to others. Um, the second path is the path of sacrifice. Jesus' mission of embrace requires the sacrifice of self. And if we're going to be on mission for Christ, as we approach Mission Emphasis Month, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the mission of Jesus, of which we are a part. 
All right. Um, it's like talking about the book of Acts. It's, the book of Acts in the Bible is called the Acts of the Apostles, but technically it is the continuing ministry of Jesus through the Apostles. Uh, so we are a part of the mission of Jesus, and if we want to be a part of that mission, which is a mission of God making room for himself, uh, room for us within himself through Jesus, uh, then it's going to require sacrifice. By the way, sacrifice is not something you're willing to make unless there's some kind of quid pro quo that you perceive, or unless your identity is built on grace and it's the overflow of the goodness of God in your life. So when we make sacrifices, there's, there's motive behind those sacrifices. Um, it could be love or it could be my own, building my own identity. Look what I did. Look who I am. Um, but the idea is sacrifice is essential to being on the mission of Christ. It is going to require, as Jesus said, that we die to self. Okay? If those words are shocking to you, that is your Savior speaking to you. Um, he is calling you to death, the death that he procured, and you joined him in through faith when you, were, when you came to Christ. So we talked about sacrifices. Number one, working to widen our hearts. This is a conscious awareness that we have to open ourselves to others, whether we're introverts or extroverts. There needs to be an effort on our part to make room for people in our lives. And certainly in our culture of busyness and modernity and cell phones and everything that is constantly barraging us, it is more and more easy to get sucked into the world of me, uh, to get sucked into the narcissism of Instagram and Facebook. And, and instead of using these tools to communicate and connect, we end up using these tools to tell people what we had for lunch. And um, it's all about, you know, it's all about us. Um, so as technology advanced, uh, advances, and it's about what I've heard from some of our members, it's about to truly advance in remarkable ways with 5G. Um, it's harder and harder for us to, uh, to widen our hearts, to open ourselves to others. We're going to become more and more isolated, more and more separate from people as technology advances. And so we have to fight against that. That's, that's the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ is people. It's, uh, it's communication, it's touch, it's presence. Second, so if, as you're widening your heart, you have to commit to living within community. And that is, that is a commitment that you have to make if you're going to follow the mission of Christ. Um, you might be able to work from home, but you can't do life at home. Life has to be lived in community, and we mean the broad community of East Cobb and Atlanta, and we mean our community. Um, I would urge you to be in a small group. There are many, uh, many forms of small group in our church, but that's a step for you to live in community. And this is part of why we exist as a church, is to create, maintain, and extend gospel-centered community. Because we believe this is how God transforms the world. It's through people in community with each other, creating, maintaining, and extending that community to our world. Uh, that requires that we learn to practice hospitality. This is a fundamental requirement of elders, but it's also a kind of a natural response of the church in the New Testament. Uh, they, they shared their bread together. They shared their meals together. They opened their homes to each other, which is a 
which is a, you know, we're having starting point lunch today, and I can't tell you how many times people have said, I've never been in a pastor's home before. I've never been in a pastor's home before. And I think, wow. Um, I mean, I want to be sarcastic and ask a lot of dumb questions like, well, isn't it more holy than other homes? I mean, you look at it, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm just like, but, but it's shocking. You've never been in a pastor's homes, but truthfully, how many of us have been in each other's homes? How are we, you know, how many of us say, hey, come over to my house for dinner or let's, let's spend some time together and open our homes uh, to each other? That's a vulnerability that we're losing that Scripture actually commands us. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to show hospitality to one another. Um, and not just to each other, but to strangers, to foreigners, uh, and to the people in our culture who are on the outskirts. And then fourthly, we talked about pursuing the welfare of others, looking out for the interests of others. As, uh, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, when Jesus laid aside the glory that he had with the Father, became man, took upon him the form of a servant, became obedient. And it's that mindset of you know, little steps that you can take tomorrow morning, get up and say, God, what can I do for others today? Give me a vision for needs around me. We have the see a need, meet a need, where you contributed almost a little over $14,000 last year to give away. And you could give it away in $250 increments without asking. You just had to produce the receipt of what you did, and we would reimburse you because it was your gifts. Uh, thankfully, almost all that money is spent. So probably by early February, that program, that ministry is going to be done, but it shouldn't stop us. Okay? We just made it, we, we made it easy. It shouldn't stop you. Um, looking out for the welfare of others doesn't have to be a $250 gift. It can be simple things that you do to minister to, to serve the people around you. But you have, to, you have to listen to, you have to ask the Holy Spirit to show you and listen to him when he says it, and then act on it. Um, you ever had that conversation with the Lord where he's like, you need to do this? You just kind of get this impression, this person needs my help, they need my involvement, and you're like, I don't want to do that. And you wrestle with him for a few minutes until it's like, all right, I'll do it. Right, And then you do it, and, and there's, there's this sense of relief because the pressure of the Holy Spirit's off you. But um, there's also the joy of seeing how he uses it um, for his glory. But that's, that's, you know, that's, what, that's what we're called to do. We're called to pursue the welfare of the city that we're living in. Our welfare, we're called to pursue the peace of it, the shalom, the, be- the betterment of it. And our welfare is tied to the welfare of our community. Um, but we have to, that, that's a sacrifice that we have to make. These are sacrifices that we have to make uh, because we're so inclined to pursuing the welfare of ourselves. Today we're going to talk about pursuing justice with grace and then practicing forgiveness. Um, let, me, let me start down. You, you know I've read several books. Um, Keller's book on the prodigal prophet, uh, Wolf on embrace and exclusion and embrace, and then Unclean by Richard Beck. Uh, these books have, have completely uh, formed some of my thoughts here, some of them original with the author, some of them original with me from my understanding of Scripture. But Wolf uh, proposes three views of justice. Number one is the idea of universal justice. What do we mean by justice? Well, there's a universal justice. This is what Christians believe. We believe there is the ultimate one universal justice of God. 
that God is sovereign, that He is Lord, that He rules over His creation, that He is evaluating His creation, that He demands and pursues justice in the world. And any justice or injustice that, that is overlooked or is not dealt with in the world, we have confidence, because Scripture tells us, that God will correct those things someday, that there will be judgment someday. So we believe in the universal justice of God. Uh, the questions that, I, that both raised, and I think were very convicting to me, because I typically step out as a Christian with this concept of God's universal justice, believing I know what's right in this situation, I know what needs to happen, who needs to be punished, who needs to be protected, I know how to fix this. And the truth is, I'm not God. There's a fallibility. There's a weakness on my part. So Wolf asked the question, can we apply God's universal justice uh, infallibly? And the answer is no, because we see through our own interests and our own traditions. And I think that's an important thing for us to pause and say, I, I need to be careful that I don't assume I'm right. I need to move forward with caution. And this is why Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to not re uh, seek retribution, not seek revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. What does Paul know that we don't know? Paul knows that often our justice is more self-interest uh, than it is justice-oriented. We think we're doing the Lord's work, but in truth, we're doing a mixture of the Lord's work and our work. And so he calls for a pause. Um, he doesn't argue against. He, he's very much for the idea of the universal justice of God. But can we apply that infallibly? He would answer no. Uh, many justices is the postmodern view. Like postmodern is, is common. You know, like its practice or its theories are in the areas of truth. Everyone's truth is personal and private. You know, your truth is your truth. I'm going to speak my truth. This is my perspective. My perspective is right for me. Well, the same thing applies with justice. Um, justice is multiple. You could have your justice. I can have my justice. They can be competing. They can be counteracting. But which one is right? And so they go postmoderns because truth is private. Justice is private. And so any ideas of universal justice are ultimately oppressive. Uh, and so deconstruction is actually justice. Deconstruction of law, deconstruction of uh, universal justice uh, in our society is actually viewed as justice. It blows my mind. I don't, I don't know if you've, what, what news channels you listen to. I try and, and look at multiple so that I don't become so focused on one. But uh, to hear that there are... Uh, prosecuting attorneys, state attorneys, state AGs, uh, attorney generals, who are saying we're no longer going to prosecute certain crimes. Not going to prosecute drug use, not going to prosecute theft under $950. There was a man in New York who robbed like three or four banks. He was caught. He was brought to jail. Because of the law, they couldn't hold him in jail. He got out that day, went and robbed another bank. And he's still on the loose. But somehow, this is justice. This is just craziness. Deconstruction of justice isn't justice. It leads to anarchy. It leads to every man doing that which is right in his own eyes.
And ultimately, society can't survive in that. The liberal mantra is that all should respect all, and yet no one should respect those who don't respect all. Which, isn't that, this is so counterintuitive. You're denying the very thing you say, right? Um, all should respect all, but no one should respect those who don't respect all. Um, because justice is blind, it fails to account for the particularities, particularities of the individual, and therefore there can be no universal justice. Justice um, in individual traditions is kind of a mixture of the both. It's, it's big traditions. It's not individual. It's the Christian tradition versus the Hindu tradition um, or the American tradition of justice versus the Indian tradition of justice or the Pakistani tradition of justice. And so the way to come to an agreement is to sit down, listen to each other, and find commonality, um, which is sort of the, you know, the more moderate position. The question we have is how does grace, I don't know about you, I believe in the universal justice of God. The question we have is how does being recipients of grace, people dependent on God, how does that affect our pursuit of justice in the world? Let me, let me make this statement. You can't avoid pursuing justice and follow Jesus. That is what we are called to by God. Okay? If you need me to prove that to you from Scripture, I'm happy to. All you have to do is read the prophets of the Old Testament. Okay? We are called to pursue justice. The question is, how does our a new identity as recipients of grace affect our pursuit of justice? Um, the first thing is grace enables us to acknowledge and evaluate our own prejudice. Grace Knowing who we are as sinners saved by grace, as the people of God, purified by the grace of God, living in dependence on God, uh, experiencing the overflow of God's goodness in our lives, everything good that we have comes from the hand of God. Um, this identity that, that we have in Christ gives us a moment to pause and say, well, maybe I need to evaluate myself. Evaluating yourself is never comfortable, it's never a positive thing. It's never something you want to do. But if you know who you are, you can. I, I made a statement two weeks ago about the Atlanta Dream Center. My, my goal was not to denigrate the Atlanta Dream Center, but it was to kind of challenge people who, who think I'm going to go down and do my good deed and come back. And it didn't land that way for, for some of us. And so someone reached out to me, and I had to evaluate myself. I had to evaluate what I said. I love the Atlanta Dream Center. I think it's a great ministry. Um, our youth group's involved in it. Some of you are involved in it. Praise God for it, right? Where would we be without it? Holy cow. Um, it's doing the work of the Lord. But in that moment, because I'm, I'm not, I don't have to defend me, I know by God's grace I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I was able to receive that criticism, that, that admonition, and, and have a moment of pause and say, was I pursuing the right thing at the moment? Did, I, did it land well? Um, so it, grace enables us to acknowledge and evaluate our own prejudice, our own, here's the scriptural word, our own partiality. Um, James talks a lot about partiality in chapter 2. Um, God shows no partiality. And this is why, this is the question, one of your study questions, this is why mercy triumphs over judgment. It's not that judgment isn't needed or judgment isn't coming. It's that 
judgment for us is tainted by our own partiality. And so there has to be a moment of pause where we, we say, wait, I'm partial. I'm not pure here in my heart. I need to, I need to move toward mercy and, and grace instead of the harsh judgment. Uh, secondly, grace enables us to nurture an awareness of our fallibility. Uh, nurturing that awareness is not weakness for me. It's actually, it's actually uh, healthy for us to recognize our inability and to nurture that, that sense of, I can't solve this. If you think you can solve it, how many times have I walked into a dispute with my children thinking I know who did wrong, I know who did right, and I know what to do. And then afterwards I'm like, well, I didn't really hear all the story. And I think I probably overreacted in my punishment. And now I have to go back to them. And I have to, I have to, I have to go back, I have to confess, I have to to recognize my failure so that my kids don't grow up hating me. And thinking that there's, there's no justice in the world. Um, so grace teaches me to, that I'm fallible and it nurtures that awareness. Um, it enables us to recognize our inability to bring about satisfying justice. That's why Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God because any justice you might bring into the world is not going to be the, the final note of justice. We want justice, especially if we're the victims. We want our, the perpetrators against us to face final judgment. But you can't deliver that. Every earthly justice is going to leave you unsatisfied. Now, the day will come when we all stand before the judgment seat of God and receive the things that were done in the body, whether good or bad. And then justice will be satisfied. but it's not going to happen in this life. And so something bigger than justice for yourself has to be, has to be our pursuit. Um, grace enables us to pursue the interests of others, um, to think about the people around us, not just ourselves. So many times justice is just about me instead of about the people on the outskirts, the poor, the, the, uh, the oppressed, the, the aborted. Um, these are the things that, that we need to be pursuing justice in. But still... Uh, from a position of grace so that we can see consider justice for the victim and the perpetrator and and this is where um i'm going to come back to that Um, grace enables us finally to make room for others within ourselves here are some quotes from some of the authors i've read seeking justice must begin with the will to embrace the other there can be no justice without the will to embrace otherwise it's just retribution it's not justice It's just revenge. It's just retribution. Um, Justice is impotent in the face of past injustice. Reconciliation is only possible through injustices being forgiven and finally forgotten. You see, this is where we pursue justice, but there's something bigger for us as Christians, and that's forgiveness. The demands of injustice will have to remain unsatisfied until the righteous one who sees clearly without partiality comes to judge in holiness. We pursue justice justice in a world of injustice with an awareness that we cannot satisfy the demands of justice or heal the wound through social control 
and rational thought. Healing doesn't come through design and argument, but the self-donation of the cross. This is why Paul says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Notice he recognizes it's not always possible. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And the word there is the idea of, of kindness. Grace enables us to overcome evil, not with vengeance, but with kindness. Wolf says there is a profound injustice about the God of biblical tradition. It is called grace. And until that grips us, we have no business pursuing justice as individuals or as a body. The last thing I want to I argue for um, is that we have to learn to practice forgiveness. The sacrifice of practicing forgiveness. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 30, uh, 32, be kind Kindly affection to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. That's the call of the Scripture, is that we practice forgiveness. I so appreciated Randy Pope, Pastor Pope's comments last week. Forgiveness is not something you can ever say, I can't do it. You can say, I don't know how, or you can say, I, I lack the ability apart from grace. But it's never something you can say, I can't, because God has empowered you to do it. You can say, I don't want to. But through the Holy Spirit's presence, through the grace that we've received, we always can forgive others. Um, why is forgiveness important? Well, number one, you can't press the rewind button and undo something. Don't you wish you could? Don't you wish you could say, oh, honey, I didn't mean to say that, that or that came out wrong, and the sting of what was said is actually taken away? Or, oh, oh let's, let's just rewind that, you know? Sometimes I do that in jest to my wife, you know, like I, I know I landed a good one. Didn't mean to, or maybe I did, you know? But, you know, I, oh, let, let me rewind that, you know? And, and she just looks at me like, there ain't no rewind button. Um, but that's the reality. We can't undo the things that we say or that we do or how we come across. We can't undo that. Um, and so there has to be a way to move forward. Um, secondly, you can't uh, eliminate the fault or separate the responsibility from the action. If someone did something, uh, whether they meant to or not, they're still responsible. And, and this really challenges our culture which is working so hard to divorce, to separate responsibility from action, to blame others, to put it somewhere else instead of on the individual. Um, God has a better way. It's, it's in forgiveness. Um, I think Wolf set up, broke forgiveness up into two actions. I'm just going to give these to you. Number one, forgiveness names the wrong doing and condemns it. It's, it's a misunderstanding to think that forgiveness doesn't 
involve condemnation. It actually does. Um, this is Wolf. He says, condem- this is a different book, by the way, a really, really good book. It's called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. I would highly recommend it. Um, Wolf says this, condemnation is not the heart of forgiveness. It's the indispensable presupposition of it. The heart of forgiveness is a genuine release from a genuine debt. If you're going to forgive somebody, you have to forgive them of an actual offense. And that means you have to name the offense, you have to call it what it is, and then you have to make the decision to release them from the debt of that. You talk about sacrifice. Folks, this is one of the greatest sacrifices we make to each other, is to forgive. God doesn't undo our sin or deny our offense. He condemns our sin, justifying the ungodly by offering his son in our place as the grounds for justly releasing and separating us from our sin. This is Romans 3 and four. Please, you know, think about that statement. That's actually original. Um, he, he doesn't deny our offense. He actually addresses it, calls it what it is, condemns it, and then substitutes his son for it so that he can justify the ungodly, Paul says. Um, forgiveness addresses the offense committed by naming it and condemning it. Uh, forgiveness is difficult for us. Why? Uh, we see ourselves as fundamentally good. As long as I'm not hurting somebody, you can't accuse me of wrongdoing. Again, that goes back to where, where does truth lie? It lies with me. Um, what we do in private is no one's business, not even God's. And so as, you know, as long as no one's hurt, getting hurt, I'm, what I'm doing is fine. It's not bad. It's not morally wrong. And, and the thing that's going to change me is not condemnation, but affirmation. This, this is the culture that we live in. No, what's going to change you is condemnation through condemnation that results in forgiveness through the cross, through the grace of Christ. Uh, to forgive is to give, and I highlighted that word, to give wrongdoers the gift of not counting the wrong done against you, against them. Forgiveness is generosity of the soul, and it must be rooted in God's overflowing loving kindness and goodness towards us. This is what in, in, in the parable in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, when Jesus is talking about the two men who were forgiven, one of a small debt, one of a great debt, the one who was forgiven a small debt uh, does not forgive his own, his, I, I missed up the story, it's this one who's forgiven a debt who then doesn't forgive, he's forgiven a great debt, doesn't forgive the small debt to his, uh, that's owed to him. And, uh, and, and Jesus just says, how can you do this? How can you be forgiven of something so big and hold on and not forgive something so small. Uh, the point is that uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. The point is that as people who have been forgiven, we are a forgiving people. And if you're not a forgiving person, Jesus constantly or, or, or requisitely uh, often calls into question whether you understand the forgiveness that you've received. Revenge multiplies evil. Retributive justice contains evil and threatens the world with destruction. Forgiveness overcomes evil with good. Forgiveness mirrors the generosity of God whose ultimate goal is neither to satisfy injured pride 
nor to justly apportion reward and punishment, but to free sinful humanity from evil, evil, and thereby reestablish communion with us. I just think that was a, a beautiful, beautiful quote there. Uh, conclusion for us together with this series. If we as a Christian church are going to pursue the mission of Christ, which is what we're about to talk about with our Mission Emphasis Month, which is what we, we desire as a church family. As individual Christians, we want to be about the mission of Christ. We must, the church must focus on the grace which is at the root of our very existence. It must build an identity of self around the grace of God and the practice and practice the sacrifice of self, uh, the sacrifice of self consistent with the grace of Christ's incarnation. We have to build our identities around grace and practice the sacrifice of self that is consistent with the grace of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. As we go to, uh, to our Mission Emphasis Month, uh, what will make us uh, more generous with our money, time, and skills? Uh, what will expand our vision for East Cobb, Atlanta, and the world? Um, the only thing... The only thing I know and the only thing I think that is proven true is the grace of God. Let's pray that God gives us grace. In a moment, we're going to have our first missionary presentation as we pray about what God would use us for as a church to advance his mission locally and globally. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the great love with which you have loved us to come and to purify for yourself a people, uh, for your own possession people who are zealous for good works. Lord, we're not as zealous for good works as we should be. Good works of forgiveness, good works of hospitality. We're just not. We're about our own mission. And we pray together that the grace we have received will build within us, will nurture within us a deep humility of, uh, of self, a deep love for Christ, a deep love for the people around us, that we will make room for others within our, our own hearts, that we will not be the Pharisees, that we will be some sort of recovering Pharisee that is growing in grace and learning to love God with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.